Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the FT Money Show from Investors Chronicle and FT Money. And welcome to the FT Money Show. In today's program, 7% on your savings. But is it any good if RPI inflation is 4.3%? Investing in India, growth is on the up, but the market's down. We find out why. Another postcode lottery. This time it's your pension being decided by where you live. And we have some good news and bad news on building society mergers and windfall payments. Remember them? I'm Matthew Vincent from FT Money, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with the help of my colleagues from FT Money, Steve Lodge. Hello. And Elaine Moore. Hello. So let's start then with the money news. Last week we reported the return of the 7% plus interest rate to the better known end of the high street. New fixed rate bonds were launched by Abbey Yorkshire Building Society and Bradford and Bingley. But on Tuesday this week, the inflation statistics revealed that the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, was up by 3.3%, and the Retail Price Index, the RPI, was up by 4.3%. So you don't need to be the governor of the Bank of England to do the maths. If you're a higher-rate taxpayer, not 40% off your 7% interest, and you're earning only 4.2%. So, Steve, um, savers shouldn't be dancing in the high streets uh, just yet, should they? Not quite, Matthew, no. Um, I mean, we've had a fabulous period for savers since the credit crunch started. They've been one of the great sets of winners from this uh, difficult period. Um, You mentioned rates of 7% even higher. We've had rates go as high as 7.15% on fixed rate bonds this week from... And this isn't from your Icelandic and uh, Nigerian banks necessarily. This is from your homegrown institutions. And that's the highest we've seen in a long time. It is the highest we've seen for a long time. But the trouble is, as we've heard repeatedly and specifically this week, we've got high inflation. So once you knock inflation off, and the inflation that people generally are thinking about here is RPI, and don't forget as well, even people think that understates the true inflationary picture, most higher-rate taxpayers aren't making any real return. In effect, they're losing money. 
so to speak, in, in, in value terms. Um, it's different, of course, for basic rate taxpayers. They, of course, are just losing the 20% of tax. So they're keeping their, their, their heads above the inflation water. If you yeah, like. so if you'd like, if, if you're locking into 7%, which you can now from a broad range of institutions, then a high, that for a high rate taxpayer, that's worth 5.4 after tax. So, so long as inflation remains or your inflation remains below 5.4, you're making some return. Um, but as you rightly said before, uh, for a high rate taxpayer, the equivalent return after all tax liability is 4.2. So if you are one of these higher rate taxpayers and you, you just can't keep up with the current RPI rate, um, what sort of things should you look at? I, I presumably anything that's tax-free has got to be a good idea. That's your obvious starting point. Cash ISAs, the classic savings no-brainer. If you're not using your ISA allowance for the full stocks and shares, the full £7,200, if you're a bit concerned about markets or you don't think much of the tax perks in stocks and shares ISAs, cash ISAs long been a favourite of mine, a real giveaway by savings institutions. Often they pay very high returns. Some don't, interestingly enough. I've um, seen, yeah, I've, I've seen some... A small, being, num- yeah, a small number are actually paying a, are not paying a real return. They're paying less than your 4.3. But typically, you can, you know, there's a wide range out there paying six and a bit. Yeah, 6.25, I think I've, uh, yes. I've seen, which will obviously be good. Uh, if you've already got money in your cash yeah. ISA and you've got other cash savings, um, anywhere else you can think about putting it? Yeah, I mean, you'll know one favourite of mine is regular savings accounts. The Halifax launched one paying 10% um, a couple of weeks back. Now, they're not. The headline rate isn't quite as grand as it sounds, of course, because you're 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 drip feeding the money in. But it's a real return of, 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 of and not a real return. We're not saying that. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a gross ten percent equivalent to six percent for a basic uh, uh, for a high rate taxpayer, eight percent for a basic rate taxpayer. Um, trouble with those accounts, of course, though, that, that Halifax is, is the absolute top pair. Many pay much less. And, of course, they, they tend to have limits on how much you can put in. I think in the Halifax case, it's £500 a month. Many others, much less. And various other restrictions as well. You have to fix the amount you're going to save for the rest of the year and so on. So that's another possibility, particularly for people who are working and have just you know, got a, you know, £100 spare or £500 spare every month and so on. Um, there are a couple of accounts out there that... Um, pay um, an inflation links return. The most obvious one, again, back to cash ice, is Leeds Building Society has something it calls an inflation buster ISA, which gives you the inflation return over a two-year period. It's not quite the same as saying the, the RPI rate we've got now, but it's, it's, it's the, the growth in inflation over, say, the coming two years, plus... Two and a half percent. So that guarantees to beat inflation. Similarly, that, that's how national in, uh, savings index linked certificates work, except their premium's a bit lower. I think it's about three quarters of a percent, 0.7 percent over, over inflation. And, and they, with them, to get the best return, you're tied in for three or five years. Um, so those are, those are your, if you like, your, your obvious inflation linked alternatives. But I mean, perhaps the, the, the big reminder out of all this should be that. You know, even though cash rates seem high, and don't forget, many people are getting nothing like the seven percent. You know, remember, bases at five. Most savings accounts are paying under five gross. So even even in gross terms, people many people will be struggling to get a real return even before tax is brought into the equation. Um, but the real point is, perhaps people should be thinking more about the markets. You know, it's obviously been a difficult time in the markets, but many shares are off. Um, 
you know, are well off. Many banking shares, many financial shares are off up to 50% um, from, from the highs of last year. It's not to say banks are necessarily a buy, but over the longer term, of course, as financial advisors and experts love to tell us, it's shares that will give you that real return. So it's, it's looking at other asset classes as well as cash, looking at shares, looking at perhaps commodities also. Commodities uh, particularly, yes. I mean, you know, commodities are fueling inflation. Therefore, you would think that commodity shares would provide the obvious hedge against rising inflation. Exactly. If you can't beat them, join them. And uh, if you'd like to know more about inflation-proofing your savings or whether to buy into commodities, look out for the articles in this week's FT Money in the weekend FT on the 21st and 22nd of June and online at ft.com forward slash money. You can also send in your questions for us to answer by emailing us at ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. Still to come in the programme, pensions by postcode, why your retirement income can be affected by where and how you live. And we have some good news and bad news on building society windfalls. But first, investing in India. As one of the so-called brick economies alongside Brazil, Russia and China, India has been one of the favoured destinations for emerging markets fund managers and investors. A few weeks ago, Newstar launched its joint venture India Equity Fund with Tata to tap into the strong GDP growth being seen on the subcontinent. But while this growth remains strong, the Indian stock market has been falling this year and a lot faster than many Western markets. So are the fundamentals still attractive and have Indian shares merely been affected by the same global pressures being seen around the world? Well, to find out, Charlene Goff of FT Money spoke to Ramnath Krishan of HSBC Private Bank and she began by asking him about the case for investing in India. It continues to be uh, a favourite you know, destination. I think, I mean, if you look at it from the investor's point of view, uh, emerging markets I mean, certainly the flavour of the day. Uh, the kind of returns that you see in emerging markets I mean, are certainly going to exceed the kind of returns that investors are likely to see in some of the developed markets, some, you know, anywhere in Europe or for that matter, uh, you know, in, uh, US and so on and so forth. So from their point of view, it just makes sense to invest in emerging markets. But of course, I mean, then it comes to the next question in terms of which countries amongst the emerging markets that they need to actually invest into. If you were to pick two names, I mean, I think it's, you know, common knowledge that India and China would be the names that, you know, anybody on the street would actually pick. Uh, there are a number of things which is actually driving this. Uh, one is, of course, I mean, the population itself. I mean, both the countries have population of upwards of a billion people. So there is a huge domestic, you know, market, onshore market that is actually there. And there is a huge disparity with the, uh, between the top end of the population and the bottom end. There is a changing demographic profile. People are getting more and more wealthy. People are getting more and more aspirational. There is more wealth, you know, getting generated and huge domestic economy. All this put together would suggest that it makes sense for any overseas investor either to set up a manufacturing base in the country or, for that matter, to invest into the equity markets and so on and so forth. As you say, we've seen this very, very rapid growth in, in India and China in particular. Um, do you think now that growth might slow a little bit as they, they're becoming more established, they're making their way into the top three? Are we likely to see the kind of growth that we have seen or do you think it will even out and become a bit more stable and sustainable? I don't think the growth is going to slow down on account of uh, on account of that really, because you know I think one must appreciate the fact that the gap is still quite huge uh, between uh, you know if I could use the phrase you know haves and have-nots. 
And there is a huge gap there I mean, that needs to be actually filled. And that's not going to happen, you know, in the near term. It's not going to happen in the next, you know, three to five years. It is going to be a long-term play. So once that is all sorted and once there is a clear compression of that gap, I mean, to a, a very marginal, you know, level, at that point in time, yes, I mean, you're going to have um, growth multipliers which will certainly be lower, you know, than what they might be today. But I can't actually see that kind of a slowdown happening, well, you know, at least for the next, you know, 25, 30 years, particularly when you're talking about China and India because you're talking about a billion people. But how has the actual Indian stock market performed this year? I don't think that's been growing quite so fast. See, the Indian um, stock markets have not, uh, have been, as I said, you know, volatile in the recent past. And uh, my own view is that it, it's quite unrelated to the onshore fundamentals. Um, but I think it will be fair to say that uh, what happens in the Indian equity markets particularly is uh, also a function of, you know, what happens elsewhere in the world because there is a fair amount of uh, cross-border investment that actually comes into the country. Uh, and, and those are substantial numbers. So if there is something overseas, any development overseas that tends to affect the sentiment of the overseas investor, if the money needs to be taken out for whatever reason, then it does tend to affect you know, the equity markets you know, locally. So to answer your question, I think it's unrelated to the fundamentals locally. The local fundamentals are still sound, barring inflation, which has been inching up a bit. Uh, the macroeconomic indicators are pretty good corporate performance is actually very good. But the stock markets don't actually reflect or manifest, you know, similar, uh, you know, health signals. And that is a function of what is actually happening internationally and not so much what is happening onshore. That was Charlene Goff of FT Money talking to Ramnath Krishan of HSBC Private Bank. And for more on investing in emerging markets, look out for the Adventurous Investor column in this week's FT Money with the weekend FT on the 21st and 22nd of June. Coming up, we have good news and bad news on building society mergers. Before that, though, postcode-based pension annuities. Last week, Norwich Union announced that it's introducing postcode-rated annuities following Legal and General's move to adopt a similar pricing mechanism over the past year. But traditionally, insurers have priced annuities, which turn your pension fund into an income, using three factors – age, gender and pension size – But with more insurers now adding the factor of life expectancy based on where you live and paying more to people in unhealthy parts of the country, this is potentially bad news for the healthy and wealthy who will receive less in retirement. So Moira O'Neill of Investors Chronicles spoke to Nigel Callaghan, pensions analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, about this move and began by asking him what exactly is a postcode annuity. Up to now... Uh, Most annuities have only been based on an investor's age, gender and fund size. Now what that's actually meant is that for those annuitants uh, who live longer, who are typically those who are from uh, the more affluent areas, they've effectively been uh, uh, subsidised by those living in poorer areas poorer areas who have a shorter life expectancy. For instance, those people living in Kensington have 
over a 12 year longer life expectancy uh, on average than those people living in some areas of Glasgow. Mm -hmm. um, now, postcode annuities have moved away from the historic one-size-fits-all approach and uh, those living in more affluent areas will actually be, as a result of postcode annuities, be offered a lower uh, annuity than those living in uh, less well-off neighbourhoods. That, in a nutshell, is what uh, postcode annuities are. And who is offering postcode annuities? Why do you buy them? At the moment, there's only two insurance companies uh, offering uh, uh, postcode annuities. It's uh, insurance companies that you would typically buy an annuity from. Those two companies are firstly Legal and General, who actually uh, launched this principle uh, 12 months ago, and Norwich Union, who have announced that they're actually going to be offering this from September this year. Well, is it going to become the norm, do you think? Will, will other insurers start offering the similar thing? Uh, I, I think that's almost certainly going to be the case. When you've got two of the largest insurance companies in the UK both offering um, this type of uh, individ more individual pricing of annuities, that's going to force other insurance companies to follow suit, um, uh, largely for two reasons. Firstly, if they don't, they're just going to lose out commercially. Norwich Union and uh, Legal and General will, will be able to hoover up um, areas of uh, annuity business at the, uh, to the detriment of other insurance companies. And secondly, and more importantly, um, if other insurance companies don't follow suit, they could be uh, left with those lives that are too healthy, that um, live longer than... Uh, um, uh, have been uh, calculated and consequently would prove to be poor annuity business to get. So I think definitely uh, uh, this is a move that other insurance companies are going to be following and going to be following pretty rapidly, I would have thought. Do you think you will see people moving areas as a result to get a better annuity income? Do you think there's a way to, to beat the system? I think I think that's pretty unlikely, really. I, I, I think this is something that uh, insurance companies will be mindful of, and uh, they'll develop systems if those systems aren't in place already for either offering spot checks to verify that um, you know somebody has lived at an address for say one, two, three years to try and counteract. Um, yeah. being selected again. So I, I think unlikely it's, uh, it's unlikely that someone's going to be able to uh, beat the system. Because you can't do that with smoking, for example, can you? You can't smoke a few packets of cigarettes and then claim you're a smoker. No, you can't. Um, medical science has moved on at quite a pace and there's now a very reliable test that will show if someone has smoked and indeed how heavy a smoker they has, they've been over the last, say, 12 months. Mm -hmm. And that's typically the type of test that uh, insurers would reserve the right to use to uh, establish if someone is a smoker or not. How can... Um pension investors get best, best value at retirement, what, what should they, they do? Okay, well, that, I mean, that's a very good question, Maura. I, I think um, the moral of the tale is always when uh, um, investors are approaching retirement, the first thing they must do is they must always shop around, firstly, to find out the best annuity. They must not, under any circumstances, 
automatically by the annuity that their pension company is offering them because that can represent really poor value for money. So number one, always shop around. That was Moira O'Neill talking to Nigel Callahan at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And uh, Elaine, this is also a story that you've been covering uh, for the FT uh, for some time. So if more and more insurers do move to these postcode-based annuities... What's going to happen to people who live in London SW1 or any other sort of haven of health and wealth? Well, the basic answer is that the rates that they'll be able to get for their annuity will come down. And what that means is, unless you are willing to move to a less salubrious area of the country when you get to a retirement age, your choices are quite limited. I suppose no one's really going to want to... You know, move away from, from probably not from the environment that they, that they like to somewhere else just for the sake of um, some extra income. Not in I, the housing market today, anyway. Oh well, no, that's a, another another very good point. I suppose um, if you don't like the postcode annuity you're getting, you might be able to a- apply for an impaired life annuity, but only if you've got certain sort of medical conditions. This is what the pension analysts are saying: is that if you get to retirement age and you are healthy and you live in a a nice area of the UK, your best bet is probably going to be looking at some of the alternative income streams that are available. So this is converting to income drawdown contracts or variable annuity contracts or unit linked annuities. And what this means is that rather than being pooled in with a group of people of your similar age and sex, you instead will be able to take an income each year from your pot of money and the rest will be kept in the markets. So it's a case of getting yourself Uh, out of the pool. (laughs) Exactly. The only risk is that if you're going to keep your um, investments in the market, then that means you're going to have to ride with whatever's happening in the market at that time. Which will be another uh, risk factor to bear in mind, I suppose. Um, But in terms of these postcode annuities, uh, uh, do you think it's likely we'll see more insurers moving to this this basis of pricing? Definitely. This is it's such an interesting time in the annuities market. That sounds like an oxymoron, but it really is. All of the pension analysts at the moment say this is tremendously exciting. There's a sort of revolution happening within annuities. And this is all really because of the baby boomers, as so much is in the world. But there's so many of them coming up to retirement now. There's such a lot of money that it's estimated that the market's going to go from, I think it's 11 billion now, to about 30 billion in just four years' time. And the providers don't want to lose that money. And at the same time, you've got enhanced annuity providers coming into the market, telling people that they can get a better rate if they smoke, if they're overweight, you know, all these kind of individual factors. So the large providers are running to catch up with these changes. And so they themselves are now offering more refined rates for people in different situations. So I suppose now, more than at any time before, when you were approaching retirement, you've really got to look for the best possible annuity deal, depending on your circumstances, where you live, and every other factor. Absolutely. You have to exercise your open market option. You can shop around. The FSA has a website that allows you to look at comparative tables. You can look at rates that are available. I think the difference can be up to about 10% each year. It's a lot of money. It certainly is. And uh, if you'd like to know more about uh, postcode annuities, look out for the Investors Chronicle article on the 20th of June and then Elaine's analysis in FT Money in the weekend FT on the 21st and 22nd of June. And finally today, it's good news, bad news on building society mergers. Now, Steve, you've long been a fan of building society mergers and the windfall payments that they can provide to members. And uh, there's been some more good news on this last week, I believe. 
Yes, indeed, Matthew. For Catholic Building Society members, savers and borrowers, with this tiny little building society that was set up with not surprisingly, Catholic origins, although that's a little bit passe now. One of its specialisms, incidentally, was um, lending money for uh, to, to single women to, to buy their own homes. And there were even reports that it used to have to report to the Vatican periodically. But I think that's all in the past now. And, and one of the reasons for its merging, I think, is frankly... It's, it is a tiny building society. It's the burden of regulation story. It's, it's going to merge itself into the Chelsea Building Society, which isn't located in Chelsea. It's even more confusing. It's in Cheltenham. But it's very southern-based, big savings, big, one of the biggest remaining building societies. Good news for Catholic savers and borrowers, windfalls, merger bonuses, as they're described. How much are we talking about? Well... Experts are telling me it will be a minimum of at least £100. It could be a minimum of £200. I mean, there's, there are technical ways these things are calculated and the bonuses may be variable depending on balance and so on. But societies nowadays know they need to offer a realistic sum. Chelsea told me this week that it won't be a paltry sum. So I think we can assume it's going to be at least £100. It might be at least £200. One former building society executive said it could be £300. Um, so, and this, of course, is... Free money, so to speak, because uh, and 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 for all the criticisms of, of 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 windfalls in the past, this is free money in the sense that you remain a building society member, so you become a Chelsea building society member, and who knows, there might be this accumulator bet that you might get another windfall if the Chelsea. Uh, subsequently mergers and so on. As with all building society mergers, it's the smaller society where the members get only the, only the members of the smaller society get the windfall. Um, essentially because they're the ones who have to vote on it. The Chelsea people don't get a vote on this. They get the Catholic lot, whether they like them or not. And um, they... Uh, and, and Yes. And... Um, so I'll, I'll just do another question. Mm. And the Catholic building society, as you point out, very, very small society. Yeah. Um, are there many of these uh, very, very small sort of specialist local building societies still left? Well, indeed. I mean, would you believe there are still 59 building societies, despite this long-running rationalisation of the industry? And it's many experts were telling me this week that it's, it's, it's among the smallest players where you will find the future, albeit trickle of mergers. Experts are saying there will be a trickle of mergers, so this won't. This is unlikely to be the well, unlikely to be the last, even in the short term. If you see what I mean, um, you tend to get on average one or two every year. But some years we haven't had one since actually since the the last mega merger between the Nationwide and Portman. But the mergers they think now will be focused on the smaller names, and it's, it really is about this regulatory burden. What a lot of financial firms, of course, are saying: the credit crisis is the FSA finally is getting its act together and starting to regulate. Um, and this is asking an awful lot of questions, and this is utterly painful for small, particularly for small firms, because the, the burden is disproportionate. Cost for a building site, even things like you know changing rates, having to send mail out new rates to endless customers and all the rest of it, changing posters and so on. Um, so I think some of them, um, some more will give up the ghost. Which ones? Well, anyone's guess, you know, 59. Um, we've got a table of the 10 smallest in um, this weekend's issue. We're not saying those 10 will necessarily go, but experts are really saying it's the, that if you want to look for your targets, then it's going to be the smallest ones without a specialist business niche. It's worth saying that amongst the smallest ones, there are ones with genuine uh, business niches. The Ecology Building Society, for example, which I believe lends against so-called green properties and self-builders and uh, self-build properties and so on. 
Um, but, I mean, there are other people as well who say it's not just the small societies. The medium ones are going nowhere because they're neither fish nor fowl. You'd struggle to know these things. The Norwich and Peterborough, the Coventry, are people really up with these the, these societies they're regional but they don't really people don't have, really have a regional affinity with them so they're competing against the likes of the Halifax and the nationwide and they're out of their depth say the experts so they could also go but at the other end the bigger names maybe they are the ones that are least likely to do something while the credit crisis lasts because frankly they're battening down the hatches and just trying to survive like your H bosses, like your nationwide, like your uh, B&B, and I won't say Northern Rock, of course, which was a former building society. Exactly. So basically the smaller and the medium-sized societies' days are numbered, but it's anyone's guess as to, as to when the next mergers will take place. Yes, indeed. And that, that's possibly the bad news. You might have to wait a long time for this process to come through. Um, and indeed, if any of the societies are real rescues um, in, this, in this credit crisis, then um, you could find that the windfalls, the merger bonuses are somewhat reduced or even negligible, even nothing. Um, and don't forget that, I mean, just to add a final nostalgic point as well, a final bit of bad news, of course, is if you like to see something called the Catholic Building Society on your high street... You may not see it in the future, although, having said that, Chelsea is promising to keep the brand name in some form. Oh, it is. Oh, well, so, so there you go. Uh, the Catholic Building Society will live on. Uh, live on. Uh, through, through the Virtually, Chelsea. perhaps. Yes, indeed. Well, that's all we have time for in this week's uh, FT Money Show. Do remember that you can email your views and your questions to ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. And we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Stephen Elaine. Goodbye. goodbye. And it's also goodbye from our long-standing FT Money Show producer, Rob, uh, who's been producing the show for about a, uh, a year and a half now, who's off to, to bigger and better things. Thanks, everyone. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to you, uh, Rob, and we'll see you next week. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.